Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Technicality, nothing personal word of the day for Wednesday, September 15th, 2021 is technicality. We're going to talk about Ryan Braun and Manny Ramirez here to start this show because both of them are back in the news. Two great right-handed hitters, two players who have been implicated in the steroid scandal of MLB in the 2000s. Technicality is a word that has legal ramifications. It's a word that you may use when you get away with doing something based on a technicality. I struggle with that in law school, actually, the concept of technicalities, because as a consequentialist, it should not matter if something procedurally did not go right. If you are guilty of something, you ought to be punished for having done it and not, quote unquote, get off on a technicality. I understand in a criminal proceeding, there is a very important constitutional right to due process. Part of due process, part of the process of a criminal case is structure. And if you violate the structure in any way, then guilty people can end up back on the streets. In baseball, when they started testing for steroids, and we were aware as executives that players were taking steroids, and we were completely complicit in that, and we're okay with it because players were hitting home runs. There was offense happening. Crowds were coming back. TV deals were being signed. Players, we didn't feed it to players. We just would look the other way. We didn't provide syringes. We didn't provide the steroids. But you have to be absolutely asleep at the switch, which I never was, to not know which of your players was doing steroids. You saw everyone naked every day. It's pretty obvious. You see moods. You see acne. You see performance. Steroids is the anti-analytic, right? Because analytics tell you what's going to happen the next moment, the next at-bat, the next pitch. But when you interject something into that, it sort of changes the time continuum, as Christopher Lloyd would say. And so taking steroids changed the evaluation of players. It led to mistakes in evaluation. It led to contracts being signed. It led to money being given to players on the assumption they'd continue. Finally, MLB had to stop because only they were getting in trouble nationally, politically. And MLB needed to protect its antitrust exemption more than it needed to protect the steroid users. So after investigations and blue ribbon panels, there was suspend there were suspensions and steroid testing and steroid testing led to a path of how you test when you test who gets tested how random it is what happens with the sample the urine sample and the way it worked is at the end of a game a 
or really it can happen during the off season. It can happen before a game, but the majority of the time there was a specimen collector waiting in the tunnel. And after a game, we would get information late in the game of which players were going to be tested. Those players coming off the field would get tapped on the shoulder. They'd be accompanied to the crappa. They'd go PP and that would be that. And that still goes on. Word came out many, many years ago, maybe 10 years ago. I can't remember the year. It doesn't matter. Ryan Braun had tested positive for steroids. Ryan Braun appealed and Ryan Braun got his suspension overturned, which rarely, if ever, happens. And the way he got it overturned is that he fought using the argument called chain of custody. Chain of custody you may have seen on LSU or CVI or CVS or those TV shows where you learn about legal things. I don't think those are called CSI. And it's not LSU. God damn it. Oh, SVU? maybe special victims unit. That may be what it is. So chain of custody is when you take a piece of evidence. You may have learned this in the OJ Simpson case, if you're old enough to remember that. When you screw up the evidence, it can't be used against you. Chain of custody is when you're at a crime site, you take a piece of evidence and you make sure it's logged and it passes in a bag to a evidence locker. No one touches it, etc. Well, that's what happens with urine. Basically, the urine gets collected, and then it gets put into a FedEx and sent to a lab for testing. What Ryan Braun claimed after his 2011 positive test is that the FedEx guy screwed up. Literally, that was his argument. So he appeals, and it turns out that baseball and the appeals process, they allowed his suspension to be overturned. Because the test collector did not properly deliver the urine to the lab. He didn't close the FedEx envelope. He kept it in his car while he smoked some Pineapple Express. Whatever the case may be, there was a break in the chain of custody. Baseball had no choice but to overturn the suspension. But Ryan Braun took steroids. Make no mistake about it. But Ryan Braun came out after his appeal was granted and said some unbelievable things. There were a lot of things that we learned about the collector, about the collection process along the way, how it all worked, and it made us all very concerned, very suspicious about what could have actually happened. I knew very well that he was a steroid guy, went to the University of Miami, knew some of his teammates, some of whom participated with him, some didn't, but it was very clear what Ryan Braun was. And believe me, when we faced the Brewers, we were less than happy to face Ryan Braun. He was called the one guy. Every team, not every team has a one guy. The Giants had a one guy with Bonds. The Brewers had a one guy with Ryan Braun. That's the one guy we're not going to let beat us. But of course, Bonds beat us so many times and Ryan Braun beat us so many times because to me, when it's a one guy, you just walk him. Don't let him hit a home run. Don't let him hit a double. Ryan Braun could mash. He won the MVP. So everything's fine. Ryan Braun didn't do steroids. Got off on a technicality. All good. Until MLB started a biogenesis investigation 
If you don't know what I'm talking about, watch the documentary that Billy Corbin did uh, called Screwball. Biogenesis is the A-Rod situation, the A-Rod clinic. And wouldn't you know that Ryan Braun got caught up in Miami-based biogenesis? How about that? So in 2013, when all this came down, he was linked to steroids. And guess what? He got suspended for 65 games as an admitted steroid user. And then Ryan Braun said, you know what? I better do something about this because what I've learned is that if I have a chance for the Hall of Fame, I better apologize. I better say I was doing it to recover from injuries. I better do a mea culpa like Andy Pettit or Jason Giambi, not be like Palmero and Clemens and McGuire and Bonds and all the other people who never admitted to their steroid use. And then Ryan Braun had a crisis of conscience and apologized both privately and publicly to that test collector, saying that he deeply regretted the comments that he made after because he sold that specimen collector under the bus, blamed that collector for screwing with the evidence, like injecting his pee with steroids so it would test positive. The legacy of Ryan Braun is being looked at as complicated. It's not complicated to me. Ryan Braun has no place in the Hall of Fame. Ryan Braun has no place to have his number retired, to have a day special for him with the Brewers. It is interesting to me that Mark Anastasio, the owner of the Brewers, who has maybe the best team in the National League along with the Giants and Dodgers, one of the top teams in the National League, best record they've ever had, heading toward an amazing playoff run, hopefully. And they're allowing themselves to be distracted by basically ignoring the past. Now, I'm all for second chances. I'm all for people being able to redeem themselves. But if you're Ryan Braun, you got to do better than that. You got to do better than simply saying, I regret what I did. You have to talk about why you did what you did. And while he doesn't owe us anything, you're right about that. If he wants to protect his legacy and be a member of the Brewers going forward, be a member of their front office, be associated with the Brewers, players have done far less and have lost their association with teams. It's going to be very interesting. The Brewers have decided very quickly how they're going to deal with Ryan Braun. They already announced a special day. Retiring his number, I assume, is coming next. Teams, when I decide what we're going to do with players, like we're very much associated with Pudge Rodriguez, the Marlins, we, that's a dollar coca, they, they're not anymore, actually. The Marlins aren't associated with anyone from their past. But I was very comfortable with Pudge. I was very comfortable with any players we had who had any sort of steroid use. But the question I asked myself is, where do I stand with someone like D. Gordon? who was a player who was not part of a World Series, who was part of some good teams we had. He got suspended for steroids, never admitted it, said it was a mistake. We knew it wasn't. We knew that he had done it after the fact only. That's a player. Here's a funny one. That's a player who we didn't think did it. There are other players who we did think did it. 
but would D Gordon be invited back for alumni events if I were still in charge of the Marlins? And I'd have to tell you that is a question that I cannot answer right now because I would have to give thought. I would speak to the owner. I would speak to my GM at the time. I would speak to my marketing people. I'd speak to some sponsors and I'd want to get an understanding. I'd want to take the temperature of where people were. And I don't often make decisions based on consensus. I make decisions based on information. I get as much information as I can from everybody. And then I make a decision, whether it's popular or not, and make the best decision that I think is right for the business going forward. What I think is right for the team going forward, what I think is right for the show going forward. But with a decision like associating with a former player, that is one where I'm not going to take such a strong position. There's decisions like that when you're a leader, when you're a boss, that you have to know when there is flexibility to listen to people who work with you and under you. And when there's not, when there's flexibility to take actual consensus, speak to actual stakeholders. And when there's not, it's like right now, a little detour here, Coca, if you don't mind, before we talk about Manny Ramirez and steroids. The Washington football team is choosing another name. The Cleveland Indians chose another name and their claim is we've got fan involvement. We claim to have fan involvement in the logo and in the name Miami Marlins and in the redesign of Billy the Marlin back in 2012 and uniforms, et cetera, claim to take suggestions on building the ballpark. We had this website that was open. What do you want to see in the ballpark? What can we do to make your experience better? We read them, but we didn't change the building for it. We didn't change the logo, the uniforms, nothing. It's like taking suggestions from people on who they want to see on the team. Who would you resign as a free agent? Who do you want batting second? Yeah, I'm happy to have you put something in the suggestion box. Do you have a suggestion box? Do you remember those when you were younger? Now it's like an inbox, right? Info at yourorganization.org. There used to actually be suggestion boxes with paper and pen, and you'd write something, put it in the box. Suggestion, we have longer lunches. Suggestion, bigger bonuses. Suggestion, higher salaries. Suggestion, why don't we sell more of this and less of that? Mostly, they were used as toilet paper. And that's not to say that some people don't have good ideas because there were some good ideas that some people had, but they were ideas that we already were doing. <laughs> I have no idea why I just went on that detour, actually. Manny Ramirez is someone who, remember Hanley Ramirez, Marlins player, always wanted to be Manny Ramirez. Remember Manny Ramirez, who the Dodgers wanted to trade to us for Giancarlo Stanton. Manny Ramirez, the champion played for the Red Sox, Dodgers, Indians, probably other than Miguel Cabrera. Hmm. One of the top five right-handed hitters truly of the last 30 years. I'd have to make a list. That's a good top five list for Levitard, maybe, who are the top five right-handed hitters of the last 20 years. And uh, hold on one second. I'm going to call you right back. I'm recording a show right now, okay? okay. Bye, Maria. And Manny Ramirez was a steroid guy. Everyone knew it. Manny Ramirez got, I'm trying to think how many times he got suspended, sort of like a Robinson Cano, multiple suspensions. He's out of the league. He's tried to come back. He went on a show and he had one of the great quotes that I've seen in a while. And I wanted to mention it. And, and he lives in Western Florida. He happens to be a good guy, but he just had the urge to be better than he was 
to keep his skill level at a place where it couldn't be as father time caught him. And so he was doing steroids. And he's not going to make it in the Hall of Fame where he was a surefire Hall of Famer absent steroids. I am paying the consequences of my bad decisions, he said. And here's where it got really interesting. But I also think that team owners should take away the World Series rings that they have and all the money that they made. And that all the Cy Young Award trophies should get taken away, too. What he's referring to is the fact that owners made money because players did steroids. Pitchers made money because they were doing steroids. Hello, Roger. We're talking about you and one Cy Young's. People got World Series rings because players were taking steroids. I think he could be referring to his own World Series ring, his own. Could be referring to my World Series ring. Could be referring to every World Series ring ever, at least since 1996. Is that the way to solve an issue? And it got me thinking about the philosophy of an eye for an eye. And the people who believe an eye for an eye are people who've been wronged, people who cannot find any other way to get justice other than rough justice. Remember that movie that we reviewed with uh, Michael Douglas, where all these judges were killing criminals who had gotten away with crimes because of technicalities. What a great way to wrap the first two segments. I don't remember the name of that movie, Coco, but we reviewed it. Michael Douglas. It's, it's pretty old, actually. So Manny Ramirez thinking an eye for an eye. And I started thinking, where do I stand on that? And I wanted to take a minute just to tell you. The problem with an eye for an eye, and you've heard this before, is that at the end, everybody's blind. And the reason why eye for an eye doesn't work, even though I am a proponent of the death penalty, I rarely give you my political views, and that's not a political view. I am in favor of the death penalty from a purely business standpoint. It is incredibly expensive to have 10 years of appeals. The way the death penalty is now, I'm not in favor of it all, where you can just have appeals for years and years and years, and it just costs so much money. And I understand that the argument against the death penalty is that what happens if someone's innocent? Well, there's an appeals process. There's a criminal process that doesn't have to last 10 years. If you get convicted by a jury of your peers, you lose your appeal that's done in a timely fashion. Or there's a way where there is no question about guilt, where it's not hearsay, it's not circumstantial evidence. There's actual evidence, first-person account, or admission of guilt. But then you get into the problem of what happens if you admit guilt because you were coerced into an admission of guilt. That was one of the issues with the Central Park robbers, the Central Park uh, muggers, the Central Park Five, the Freed Five now. But the eye for an eye philosophy is that if someone does something to me, I'm going to do something back. When you get hit on the playground, you're told, don't allow yourself to get bullied, push back. What about just walking away? What about having enough self-respect, enough self-love that it doesn't matter what people think of you. And this is the beginning of the buildup of my armor, where I started to not care at all after being teased and bullied when I was a kid. I grew this armor, having been short my whole life, where it didn't matter what anyone did to me. I was never going to retaliate. I couldn't retaliate physically. I'm not big enough. I could always retaliate mentally, which I've always done. I've always thought that the best revenge is success. 
the best revenge is making people jealous of your success, whether it's financial or otherwise, doesn't matter, any sort of, any, any sort of success. And you can't have that feeling of success if you are engaged in eye for an eye, because then it's just even. That's not winning. I want to win. And the way to win is not to play for the tie. So Manny Ramirez, who's saying, I did something bad. I'm not allowed in the Hall of Fame. Therefore, you shouldn't be allowed in the Hall of Fame. Therefore, you shouldn't keep your money. Therefore, you shouldn't keep your rings. Does that take away what he did? Would that change his legacy? Would that change his narrative? All of a sudden, all boats rise with the tide so or lower themselves into the gutter because everyone is playing handball in the gutter. Does that mean it's okay? Because by comparison, you're equal. Therefore, you did nothing wrong. Look, everyone was killing people. I was fine to kill someone. There was a brawl going on in the playground. Of course, I was okay punching someone. I think Manny has it wrong, and he's trying to be in the Hall of Fame. In order to do that, he should take the microphone and go on shows and have a different approach. The approach should simply be, I was out of my mind as a player thinking that I needed an advantage like performance-enhancing drugs. I was wrong to do something that was against the rules. And as I reflect on my career, I realized that I was good enough to help a team win a World Series without taking PEDs. And that is a regret that I will have for the rest of my life. And that's a regret between me and myself. That's sort of a mea culpa. A lot of legacies at stake with everything, all the cheating that goes on in sports. Technicality was your word of the day. When we come back, we're going to review a movie where the death penalty happened. And we're also going to talk about another outbreak in the NFL. We have to. We have to. There's another outbreak. It's going to matter, folks. It's going to matter. We will be right back. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. Thank you for rating, reviewing, following, telling your friends about our show, getting on YouTube if you don't mind, and subscribing to Nothing Personal with David Sampson as the YouTube channel, making sure you follow on Spotify and rate and review on Apple. We watch them every day. I watched a movie called Man of God. I watched a movie called No Man of God starring Elijah Wood and the guy from uh, Lord of the Rings and Luke Kirby. 
Luke Kirby is the guy from Marvelous Mrs. Maisel who plays Lenny Bruce in that show. And it's a movie about Ted Bundy and the FBI agent slash criminal profiler who got money to start a program to try to figure out why serial killers kill, what goes through their mind, how to figure out who could be a serial killer, how to stop. It's almost like pre-crime in Minority Report. How can we identify traits of people so we can stop them from doing something before they do it when we don't have precogs? This FBI agent played by Elijah Wood in a true story became one of the most famous criminal profilers of all time. The movie is him and Luke Kirby as Ted Bundy having in-prison meetings that are recorded. It's based on those meetings. The majority of the movie is those two people in a room with very interesting camera work, two actors who have very long scenes, very long takes, one take, you see the camera sort of going in a circle as they go from person to person, from Ted Bundy to the FBI agent. Very interesting movie. Ted Bundy, of course, is the serial killer. Many movies have been made about him. Zac Efron played him. So many people played him. I think I've reviewed another Ted Bundy movie. There were some documentaries about him recently. And of course, he had his life ended as it should have been. But this movie... It's interesting to watch Luke Kirby's performance because it's the best performance of Ted Bundy I've seen. And Elijah Wood plays this agent in a way that shows you, it reminds me a little bit of the FBI agent in Wolf of Wall Street. They dress him in not nice suits. They show him as being a smart guy, but someone who is trying to figure out how the other half lives and whether or not they can be tempted by that. And one of the most interesting parts of No Man of God is when Ted Bundy says to him, what's the difference between you and me? Could you kill someone? Answer that question for yourself. No Man of God, it's worth it. The New Orleans Saints have a COVID outbreak. Eight people have tested positive. I think it's six coaches, a nutritionist, and a player so far. And it is a... Interesting situation, because do you remember what the NFL did before the season started when they said, hey, if you get COVID and you are not vaccinated, you're in trouble. If you get COVID and you have to miss a game and the team has to miss a game and you're not vaccinated, you are in major financial trouble. The Saints have this outbreak. The first thing they did And this is what teams are going to do now. The first thing they did is say, hold on, everyone. Just to be clear, every person who's positive has been vaccinated. Because the owner of the Saints does not want any association. Now, you could do some work on the owner of the Saints and wonder what's going on with that and where she stands on vaccinations, et cetera. Doesn't matter. The fact is she doesn't want to lose money. No owner does. So they made it very clear that Everyone was vaccinated. And so the question is, will they play this weekend? Coca, do they play the Panthers by chance? I don't know why that's in my head. They may play the Panthers this weekend, Carolina. And the question is, will the game go on? And the answer is quite simple. It's not even worthy of a wait to see. Of course, the show will go on. It's coaches. They're going to let the show go on with your top ranked quarterback out and all of your other players. 
So the Saints have this outbreak. The NFL is going to continue. It's fine. The NBA has a season that's starting soon. Training camp is starting soon. They released their new COVID protocols, basically the same as the NFL, in that if you're not vaccinated, you're going to get in trouble. We are going to shame you into getting vaccinated. It is shocking to me that people need to be shamed into getting vaccinated. Just get vaccinated, for Christ's sake. What's the big deal? But in the NBA, if you do not get vaccinated, you have to wear a mask in training facilities. You can't sit with anyone on the road. You can't go out on the road. You are subject to constant testing. If you have any contact with anyone who does test positive, which every player is going to have this season because of where we are with COVID, everyone is going to have contact with someone who tests positive for COVID. If you're vaccinated, no problem. You're good unless you become symptomatic and have COVID yourself. If you're not vaccinated, you have to quarantine. You can't be with the team. The NBA is touting the fact that it is not making its players get vaccinated, but every all the referees, all the other personnel on the bench, all the personnel in the arena, everyone else has to be vaccinated. And you know why, say it with me, U-N-I-O-N, five letters. That's the reason why NBA players don't have to get vaccinated because the union said, ah, we don't want to make our players get vaccinated. You can't force us. We are the big bad union. MLB's doing it, NFL's doing it. So ironic, so ironic that unions are supposed to protect workers. Isn't that funny? That's why unions started, right? To protect workers. I guess the players union doesn't feel like they need to protect its players because they don't want to fight. They don't want to give in. We can't allow vaccinations to take place. (laughs) Meanwhile, there are three teams. You remember I said in basketball, they have to be vaccinated or else they can't play. So you know that everyone on the Knicks, Nets, and Golden State Warriors are going to be vaccinated. You know what's going on in California. Did you see what happened with the recall last night, folks? Governor Gavin Newsom was subject to a recall, ostensibly because of his views of immigration and death penalty, but really because of COVID. The Republicans were trying to get him out of office because he is so hardcore on COVID. Forget the fact that California has actually taken care of COVID better than anyone but the Republicans are lauding Ron DeSantis and how great he's done with COVID because everyone's dying in Florida, but you don't have to wear a mask. And we'll find you if you force anyone to wear a mask. Thank you, Ron. Disgraceful. The concern in California by the Democratic Party was that if he did get recalled, that would be a bad sign for midterm elections, bad sign for 2024. And the rules of recall in California are so bizarre because You didn't need, once Newsom was recalled, then the new governor would be some yutz who got like 10 votes. 46 people were on the ballot and the new governor would be named in the recall vote if Newsom got recalled. And it's just someone who had the most votes of all the people who barely got votes. But Newsom did not get recalled. People voted no to the recall. People in Miami recalled their mayor. I don't recall a governor ever being set up for recall in Florida that I've been a part of, but it's a pretty big deal. I am completely against all recalls. No matter what, I'm against recalls. There's impeachment. You can have that. And there are laws of that. But the best way to recall a politician, wait for it. I know it's going to confuse you. Vote them out. Vote her out. Vote them out. Go to the ballot box. 
If you do not like what someone stands for, if you don't like that, they like public financing. If you don't like that, they like the death penalty. If you don't like that, they don't like taxing the rich, whatever the case may be, no problem. Vote that person out. And if you don't get enough votes, that's how it goes. Hmm. Nothing personal pick of the day. The Dodgers clinched their (laughs) Coca. Wipe it. Four, six, nine. Nothing personal pick of the day. The Dodgers clinched a playoff spot for the ninth straight year. That's a record for a successful franchise. Nine years in a row, the Dodgers have been in the playoffs. They've got one ring. They are five years away from being the Braves. One ring in 14 straight appearances in the playoffs. There's no end in sight to the Dodgers making the playoffs. The Padres are 20 games back. I told you the Padres would lose to the Giants. The Giants have won 95 games, clinched the playoffs two days ago. The Dodgers have won 93 games, clinched the playoffs yesterday. But they've got a big division race on the line because otherwise, here's how this plays out, by the way, in Major League Baseball, because we are now basically two weeks away from the end of the regular season. The top seed is going to be the winner of the NL West. The top seed is going to play the winner of the wild card play-in game or the wild card single elimination game in the National League. Back in the old days, back in the old days, you could not play a team in your division in the first round. When we put the second wild card team in and we had a, a uh, single elimination game, we got rid of the rule that said, teams cannot play themselves in the division because it was unduly burdening a division winner. So what do I mean by that? If the San Francisco Giants win the NL West and the Dodgers, the wild card team and the Dodgers win the wild card game against the Cardinals or the Reds or the Padres, the Dodgers are the lowest seeded playoff team. Ironic this year. So the Dodgers would not be allowed to play the Giants. So the Giants would be forced to play a different team, like the winner of the NL Central, the NL East. So they'd be forced to play the team with the lower record of the Braves or the Brewers. So they'd play the Braves. Maybe the owner of the Giants would want that now. But the rule was changed so as not to put a team that wins a division in a bad position. You want to play the wild card winner. Who would have thought that the wild card winner could be a team with a better record than anyone else in the league, except for their own division winner. So the Dodgers or the Giants, whoever loses the division will host a one game wild card. If they win, they'll play the Giants. So the Dodgers could end up playing the Giants with San Francisco having home field in a best of five first round. Or if the Dodgers win the division, the Giants win the wild card, the Giants would go to L.A. The Giants would go to L.A. for the first round series. Which means the Brewers and the Braves are playing in the first round no matter what. Because if the Dodgers or Giants are in the wild card game and they lose to the second wild card, the winner of that wild card game either way is playing the Giants or the Dodgers, whoever wins the division. Suffice it to say, it's going to be a hell of an October. And we're going to be here with you throughout October. I'll be on CBS Sports HQ 
maybe a few times on the network. Who knows? There's going to be a lot to talk about, a lot of storylines, because we're going to have a champion at the end of a full season. We've got COVID hovering over us. We've got injuries hovering over us. We've got exhausted players. It will be fascinating to see who can make it through October, which is exhausting to begin with, even if you're not exhausted heading into it, which all the teams are. So we are 117 and 99 right now as the Giants beat the Padres. I told you the Giants were not going to have a letdown after clinching. They want to win that division. Well, the Cincinnati Reds have lost several games in a row. They've lost ground to the Cardinals. The Cardinals are now in the second wildcard position after being left for dead. That's a poor expression. After being counted out as a playoff team, they have somehow gotten hot. And I remember saying it's going to be down to the Reds and Padres for the second wild card. There's still two weeks left, so I'm not willing to say I lost that weight to see. But it's going to be interesting if the Cardinals stay this hot, they will be the wild card team. The Reds got to win games and the Reds are playing the Pirates. They lost to the Pirates last night. So frustrating when you're trying to make the playoffs and you're running a team that's trying to make the playoffs and you have a favorable schedule. You're playing a crappy team and you lose games you need to win. Those are games that stay with you during an offseason. My 30-minute rule would get violated from time to time when we would lose games late in the season that we needed to win in order to stay in the playoff race or to possibly get into the playoffs for a second time because I wanted it so badly. And when you can't beat bad teams, I think that just makes you a bad team. But tonight, I'm going to take the Reds over the Pirates. The Reds are not going to lose two in a row to the Pirates. Because if they do, we're going to lose our pick of the day. It'll be our 100th loss against 117 wins. But more importantly, that's Sayonara to the Reds. They'd be done. Teams are struggling to figure out what to do, figuring it all out. The Yankees came back from a 5-0 deficit to beat the Twins. They said, this is now the beginning of our comeback. We're awake now. We needed that. And I told you on yesterday's show, that's what we always say when we have a big victory, and that only lasts till you lose again. The Yankees had a win yesterday, though, against the Baltimore Orioles, and they had Garrett Cole on the mound. If they didn't win that game, beating the Twins the night before, it all would have been for naught. The Yankees are tied for the wild card with Toronto, with the Red Sox, maybe a half game back. The three AL East teams, other than Tampa, You've got Tampa winning the division. You've got New York. You've got Boston. And you've got Toronto fighting for two wildcard bursts. And I'm ignoring Seattle. So the Yankees did something that one of you asked about. And I want to answer that question because it was a very interesting move this late in the season. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Samson. So you want to talk to Samson. Someone just tweeted at me that they have not seen Half-Baked until they listen to a show. They're new to nothing personal. Thank you. They got on Twitter at David P. Sampson. And they said, I just watched Half-Baked. Half-Baked is where this segment comes from. If you don't know that, you're new to the show and we thank you. So keep, keep coming to the show. But watch Half-Baked. There's a character named Sampson. Get into my Twitter at David P. Sampson. Ask a question. Here was the question. Hi, David. Hi. Can you explain what goes into a position change so late in the season? Now, of course, I know what he's talking about, but it wasn't discussed in the question, so I'm going to explain it to you. The Yankees, on September 13th, made an announcement that Glaber Torres, their shortstop, is now going to be their second baseman. Glaber Torres, 
who has committed around 18 errors, which is second in the league behind Bobachet as a shortstop, is being moved to second base. Glaber Torres is being moved because the Yankees are so desperate that they believe a position change will help their team defensively and will help Glaber Torres offensively because they're simply not scoring enough runs, notwithstanding the fact that Gallo, Stanton, Judge, they all hit home runs yesterday to beat the lowly Orioles. How does a position change happen? Because Aaron Boone was pretty clear that he spoke to Torres and Torres bought into it. Torres was okay with the position change. So I wanted to give you a little input into how it actually works when there's a position change. We bring the player in and we do it not after a game. We do it when the player comes to the ballpark. Players report, let's say stretch is four o'clock. Players are at a, for a home game. Players come at about anywhere between two and three o'clock. Some players come as late as 3.30. We bring the player in into the manager's office. And remember, I told you what happens in the manager's office. You're either traded, sent down, signed to a deal, told you're an all-star. Players really don't know necessarily, especially when you're called in pregame. There's no question you're not being optioned. You're not being released because that's going to happen well before pregame. It's going to happen after games because the new player coming onto your team has to have a locker, has to have a uniform. So you can't release a player the day of game. You want to do it after a game. So Glaber Torres walks in, just like we'd have a player walk in, and we say, listen, uh, we're going to play at second base tomorrow, and we think you're ready. We think you're going to be fine at second base. Our concern is that you're taking your defense into the batter's box, and we want to make things easier for you. We're going to go ahead and mute and move DJ to third base. We're going to play Geo at short. But I don't want you in any way, we would tell a player, to think that we've lost our faith in you. We don't want you in any way to think that we don't want you on our team, value on our team. We need you to win. Those are the words you have to say to a player when you're doing a position change. You have to help their ego. We need you to win. And the reason I like saying that is players like hearing that. Because the truth is, the reason you're doing a position change is that you have no other choice because the player's been so bad. You have no other choice because your team has been so bad that you're looking for anything. We would tell players when we were moving them down in the order, when you've got a number two hitter all season long and we're going to move them out of the two hole and into the seven hole, we're not going to have the player discover it by looking at the lineup that we post in the clubhouse. We're not going to have a player discover a position change when he looks at the lineup when he gets to the ballpark. We're not going to bench a player without telling him first who's been a starter. The reason why we would communicate with the players, everything about their big league status is that was our best hope of having that player perform. There's only one thing we would never tell a player until it happened. And that was about being optioned to the minor leagues. The reason why you never tell a player they're going to be optioned before you actually option them is that if they then claim injury, they have to go on the major league injured list, which means they get major league service time and they get paid at their major league rate. When you option a player to the minor leagues who is on a split contract, which means they get paid at a certain rate 
in the minor leagues and a certain rate in the major leagues. When you're optioning a player like that, you don't give that player time to fake an injury. And believe me, it's happened more times than I can count. The way it happens is you walk in, you option a player, and the player says, I can't be optioned. My shoulder hurts. And we'd say, did you go to the training room? Well, not, but I, I just, I'm telling you now. And we'd say, we'll see you in the grievance. When we were going to option a player who had been in the training room because of a shoulder problem, we would make sure to guarantee health by having that player pitch in a game and then option him, saying he can't be hurt. He played. And then a player would say, I played hurt. And then you'd have a grievance. You win some of those, you lose some of those because players do not want to be optioned. Position changes are different in that that's not going to impact your arbitration number. It will be used by the team against you. The team will say in arbitration, this player made all these errors that we were forced to do a position change. This player was hitting so poorly, he was forced to the bench or forced to hit down in the lineup. This player fielded so terribly that we had to bench him. Anything that we need to argue in order to lower a player's pay, we're going to argue. But in terms of the mechanics of a position change, I understand why the Yankees did it because the Yankees are desperate. And you do a position change when you're desperate. Will this be a catalyst for the Yankees? Absolutely not. Will it impact labor tours at the plate? Absolutely not. Will he be free of mind because he doesn't have to worry about his errors at shortstop? Absolutely not. Because when you are up in your head as a player, when you are slumping, when you are worried about your defense, it doesn't matter where you are on the field. The ball is going to find you and it's going to be tricky. And you're going to have tough plays you have to make. That's why doing a late season position change for me does not make sense. Because you are now in a playoff run for your lives if you're the Yankees. You're in a playoff run for your job if you're Aaron Boone and Brian Cashman. And the message you're sending to the clubhouse matters. When we send players down, when we did position changes or changes in the batting order, we had to take into account the impact it would have on the rest of the team. And whether or not we needed to bring in the team psychologist, whether or not we need to speak to other players about position changes or batting order changes or sending players down who are friends with players and see how that would impact. We would do those things because it's such a delicate balance when you have a team that you've put together, when you are in a stretch drive. The delicate balance is in trying to keep players able to play at their peak. And believe me, it's less than easy. I think that's our show. I really wanted to talk about John Wall and the Rockets trading him, Coca. Let's get to that tomorrow, if you don't mind, if we have time tomorrow. That's it for today. Remember, it's just business. This is nothing personal. 